0: It's Friday, May 18th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Dr. Jared Cohen presided over Carnegie Mellon University's rise to global prominence as a research hub for the tech industry. But as an academic, he got his start in environmental engineering with an emphasis on water infrastructure that continues to this day. Even though he's an engineer, he's come to believe there's no purely technological solution to Western Pennsylvania's water quality troubles.
1: You cannot solve water problems without taking an approach that matches the scale of the problem. Rivers don't know political boundaries, and they don't care about political
0: boundaries. That insight led Dr. Cohen to adopt a broad-based, multifaceted approach to a whole range of environmental issues, accounting for all the messy political, economic, and institutional factors that often inhibit positive change. He says that's the only way to really grapple with the kinds of long-term challenges the region's facing.
1: If we can put ourselves forward 50 years or 100 years, what do we want
0: our legacy to be? Conversation with scientist, educator, and environmental leader Jared Cohen coming up on this episode. First, some news from PAC. This year, our Pittsburgh office is one of 114 organizations nationwide newly recognized by the League of American Bicyclists as a bicycle-friendly business. The designation recognizes workplaces that provide accommodations or incentives for employees to commute by bike and also that support and advocate for cycling in their communities generally. We got the news just in time for National Bike to Work Week, which wraps up today, Friday the 18th, National Bike to Work Day. That should come as no great surprise that many PEC staffers regularly or occasionally bike to work at one of our four regional
2: offices. To
0: mark this occasion, I spoke with a few of them about their experiences.
2: Hi, my name is Frank McGuire. I am the Program Director for Trails and Outdoor Recreation here at the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. My office is in State College, Pennsylvania, in the center of the state. I try to ride to work every day that I can. It's just recently that I've had somewhere to go. I used to work from home. But we chose where we live based upon accessibility to grocery store, restaurants, our son's school. Uh, my wife's work, all based on being able to bike to work. We are a one-car family, uh, and we're only able to make that work for us because we have the accessibility by bike to everything in our community that we might want to do.
3: I'm Laura Bray with the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm a program coordinator. I wouldn't say regular. Um, whenever the mood strikes me and the weather's right, um, a few times a month, I ride my bike to work. I only live about two miles from work, um, and fortunately, the ride to work is all downhill, so it's quite brisk and easy, and then by the end of the day, You know, ready to get home, so I power through. Um, Super hilly, though.
4: My name is Chris Corbrand. I'm the uh, program and communications coordinator for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, based here in Pittsburgh, PA. Uh, My route to commute is pretty simple. I'm only about a mile and a half uh, from my house to the office, so it's the easiest commute that I've ever had. Um, But with that said, you know, I've, I've been commuting by bike for probably the last 10 years or so in Pittsburgh, and it definitely has some challenges. Uh, Some of the biggest ones that we see are hills. We have plenty of hills, not like some other places around uh, the state. Um, It definitely makes a challenge, that and some of Pittsburgh's more narrow streets and uh, still slightly less than informed drivers make, uh, make, make it challenging sometimes, but it's not too bad.
5: I'm Lizzie Hessek, Program Manager for Trails and Recreation at the Philadelphia office. My normal commute to work is a 20 minute walk from my house to the office. I live in Center City, uh, so it's a really pleasant and pretty quick walk. uh, When I don't have 20 minutes to get to work, for whatever reason, Um, (laughs) I will bike to work and then it's only about six minutes. And the cycle commute is also very uh, pleasant and flat and uh, you can see parts of the city that you maybe don't, even when you're walking.
2: I bike to work for all the reasons that are possible. Change of pace for me is great. It's exercise. I like to get to decompress when I'm done with work at the end of the day. I was thinking the other day when I rode three different errands, uh, including riding to work, that that was saving me about six or seven bucks. And if I add that up over the course of many months, it's actually some real money. And there's also just the part of, I want to leave a smaller footprint on the earth.
3: Riding bikes makes me feel like a kid, so that's always fun. Um, And I like being active, of course, um, and I just have to say it helps me wake up before my day. I don't really do too much to prepare. Um, I make sure I have at least close-toed shoes on, um, but I don't really necessarily ride in biking gear, um, just kind of my day-to-day clothes.
4: The winters in Pittsburgh, of course, are not great. Um, I've got a, a nice, heavy pair of wool pants that I wear when it's really cold. Uh, when we just have your know, regular old rain, some rain pants, uh, a pair of waterproof boots because when your feet get wet, your whole day is pretty much ruined, so got to keep the feet dry. Uh, I have a, let's see a, a, a cast of hats and gloves and safety glasses and goggles and all that fun stuff that comes with uh, the territory. I got
2: into bike commuting about 25 years ago. Started off completely scared to ride in the streets. Uh, I remember my first day of riding to work, it was about three miles away, and I rode the sidewalks the entire way there.
3: I think it can be intimidating at first to to ride on the road, but I'd say go with a friend who's really comfortable and knows how to signal.
4: Usually once you get your route down and you you see some of the potential challenges, um, you take it up a little bit on your own, and then it's something that you do, and then people are going to start looking to you for uh, when they want to start commuting or, or
2: tips. Try it in baby steps. It really isn't that hard. Pick a day that you know traffic's going to be low, or a time that traffic's going to be low. There are some routes that you may not want to, you know, take on right away. But get used to what what you're comfortable with, and understand that you know there's ways to make yourself safe.
5: I do feel safe within the um, so Philadelphia. Has really narrow streets in Center City. Uh, cars tend to not go very quickly. Of course, there have. Been um, a few bike fatalities in Center City recently um, so it's not you know, completely danger free but typically the cars are going slow enough and they're looking for cyclists in the area that I um, cycle so I feel lucky for that reason.
4: Pittsburgh uh, could use a little bit more in the way of infrastructure uh, we're always getting more bike lanes uh, more sharrows the perception of cyclists has changed drastically in my time in Pittsburgh to uh, something where you could ride around and you'd recognize everybody else you'd see on a bike. And now it's uh, so many people that you hardly run into anybody you know, which is great to see.
3: I'm actually really fortunate. I live right off of Liberty Avenue and there's a bike lane for uh, most of my rides on Liberty. Um, and then I turn into the Strip District and there's Sharrows. Um So I, f- I feel mostly protected. I haven't had any had any incidents. So, so far so good.
2: I think one of the big things about biking as a more attractive transit option is knowing how to get from place to place. And so a lot of our work is about making sure things are connected in an easy way.
4: One of the, uh, the one of the other opportunities we have for uh, making sure everybody can commute is, is looking at the region in a more connected way to all the neighborhoods in the city and even further out into the uh, the different municipalities throughout the county. Um, so really fleshing out and planning what those connections look like will be beneficial to uh, getting more people involved in commuting.
0: That was PAC's Laura Bray, Frank McGuire, Lizzie Hessek, and Chris Corbrin on getting to work and back on two wheels. As we celebrate National Bike to Work Day and Peck's designation as a bicycle-friendly business, you can check out Chris's blog post on that news at our website at PeckPA.org. The 2018 Western Pennsylvania Environmental Awards Dinner is next week in Pittsburgh. This is one of four events PAC hosts across the state each year, recognizing outstanding work on a range of environmental, conservation, and outdoor recreation projects. It's also a chance to honor a few exceptional individuals who've made exceptional contributions over years or even decades of service. Dr. Jared Cohen is one such individual. His name is well known in the Pittsburgh region for his leadership of Carnegie Mellon University during a time when CMU came to be known as a global leader in science and technology research. But Dr. Cohen began his career working on environmental issues. And over the years, he's remained an integral participant in the regional discussion around air and water quality, infrastructure, energy development, and many more issues that are important to the region. That's why Jared Cohen will receive the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Award at next week's Western PA Dinner. PAC President David Woodwell has worked closely with Dr. Cohen for years. and The two of them got together recently to look back on his extraordinary legacy. Here's their conversation.
6: Today we are honored to have uh, Jared Cohen, Dr. Jared Cohen, who is President Emeritus and University Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. And for our purposes today is the recipient of the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Award from PEC at this year's Western Pennsylvania Environmental Awards, which we are honored to give to him, focusing mostly on what I don't think people talk about most with your work, which is really the environmental piece, when you're really thought of as the bringing CMU so far into the national international world and as a engineering and technology giant, but you've also got an amazing background in the environment. Correct.
1: Well, thanks for saying so. <laughs> I, I have a background. How amazing it is is another issue. But uh, yes, indeed, it's my passion. It's what I devoted, devoted my academic research and teaching career too.
6: And a lot of focus on water, on energy, even on nuclear waste, yeah. uh, and a stint at the Yale School of Forestry as dean, correct?
1: That's correct. I was dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies for five years in the early 90s. Okay, so how did you get into all of this? Uh, well, uh, first I have to tell you that when I'm often asked, as I am, uh, how did you become university president? I tell people I'm the forest Gump of university presidents. And I think that characterization would apply to my environmental work, too. I went to Penn, uh, which why I went to Penn is another story, which we don't have to get into, to study uh, engineering, civil engineering, because uh, I thought bridges and structures were cool, and I wanted to learn about that. And I was good in math and science. This was in the early 60s or mid 60s, and uh, at a time when there was only one environmental engineering course required of everybody in civil engineering. Uh, and I took that course and suddenly discovered my real passion. I was very lucky that it was being taught by a wonderful professor named E. Raj Zandi, still with us, uh, and he brought his passion. And knowledge to the classroom, and it was infectious. And I realized that um, that's what I wanted to do, not just because of the technical challenges in environmental engineering, but because you can't do anything about the environment without involving people. It's all about politics and sociology and economics and policy, not just technology. And that combination
6: really appealed to me. So where'd you go from there? Because that, that was a time when you know, there wasn't the EPA wasn't around. The EPA all, didn't exist. The EPA didn't exist. All the big statutes weren't around yet at the federal level. Right. Pennsylvania already had some good stuff.
1: But I'm from Cleveland, and <laughs> its river had already caught on fire. Yes. So uh, th- there was a growing realization mm-hmm. that we had real environmental problems. We, the country... Uh, that had to be dealt with. But you're right. So I went from there to MIT for graduate school, from undergraduate to graduate school. And I was part of a uh, new water resources systems analysis program in the civil engineering department, a program that brought together engineering with operations research, applied mathematics and economics um, to analyze large scale water problems.
6: And water is something that's on throughout your career, right? and especially here, I think, and people don't understand how important your role has been in looking at some water issues in western Pennsylvania and Allegheny County specifically. So why water? We'll get to what those were, but why water?
1: Uh, well, now that's a good question. I've never really self-analyzed that. Maybe it was the opportunity that presented itself, and um, back then, you either did water or air. I mean, those are the choices. And I guess MIT's particular strength was in water, and they had a lot of new, exciting professors trying to put together this new water resource systems idea. So I guess that was it. Of course, we don't lack for water problems.
6: True. Continued today. So at that point, it was also, I think when you've got the Clean Water Act coming out in its early days and a focus on point sources, on basically pipes. Absolutely. And the systems, was the role... That you were taking more of an advocate or a problem solver, or is there a combination of those that goes together?
1: No, much more problem solving. In fact, it was kind of drummed into us. Your job is to analyze the problem, present the alternatives, and then let the politics take care of the rest to arrive at a decision. A pretty naive idea, but it took me decades to appreciate that if you want to... Uh, really influence decisions. you got to be part of the sausage making. You can't just insert the ingredients.
6: So how do you do that? And this also comes, I mean, continues with water, but also gets into things like unconventional shale gas development, where the academic and the advocacy have been, in some ways, accused of commingling. And it's, it's been a tough thing. I know the University of Texas got, you know, a number of years ago, yeah. where does the That's money right. come from? What do you do? Right. How do you address that? Oh,
1: it's such. That's such a great question and such a deep topic, and one that I don't think anybody has come up with a really good formula or answer to, because there isn't a sharp line, a clear line that separates analysis from advocacy, or um, uh, the technology from the policy. It's a blurred line, and as people who are expert in both, or try to be, uh, we have to straddle that. But then when it comes down to individual problems or issues, it really is a tricky thing to figure out what your correct role is because the one thing that we, as the sort of engineers, the technical people, will bring to this is our credibility, our knowledge about the problem. If we're viewed as taking a particular side, and therefore you gave the example of Texas, biased, obviously. Uh, it's amazing how quickly you get rejected. Uh, in fact, uh, on shale gas, just to digress a little bit, but it's a good ex- example. Uh, one of the things I did here in Western Pennsylvania was to co-chair the uh, shale gas roundtable, which you know something about, um, for the Institute of Politics at the University of Pittsburgh. And one of the issues we focus on was exactly the one you raised. Uh, At that time, and it's still the case, that time being five years ago, um, it was the case that um, any research was viewed as uh, uh, hopelessly biased based on who funded it. So if it was funded by industry, anybody not of industry would reject it out of hand and vice versa. And so we, the Roundtable, came up with the idea of creating a research fund that would be equally funded by industry and the government, EPA, ideally, um, and that therefore the recipients of funds from that uh, through that model would be viewed as doing objective research, or at least not being saddled with uh, who funded it. Uh, that and we, as a, as you know, as a roundtable, proposed creating such a fund. I'm thrilled to tell you that it's been created the Health Effects Institute, which was created based on that very model 35 years ago to deal with air quality issues, has taken on the shale gas uh, research uh, agenda. And they have funding from industry, and they're about to get funding from EPA, and it's happening.
6: Well, and let's talk about HEI, Health Effects Institute, a little bit, because you've been very involved with that over years, too. And that's, you know, these are things that don't happen in the limelight. This is not the kind of thing that people are marching the streets about, but it's it's getting real change, affecting effectuating real change. And HEI was doing it with the auto industry, right? Trying to reduce emissions. Yep, exactly right. And what's and the model was what's the kind of success that that had over time?
1: It's been spectacular, uh, without question. HEI is the go-to uh, scientific, objective scientific research organization. In the air quality auto space, uh, their studies are cited time and again by everybody. So everybody, every side in the, in, in, in the debate, uh, because it's viewed as beyond reproach. Uh, and it is both because of the funding model it's, that we already talked about, but also because of the very rigorous review process that they have uh, that makes the National Academy of Sciences, which looks rigorous, seem lax by comparison. It's very, very rigorous. So their studies have held up remarkably well and have really informed policy, not just in the U.S., but globally. All
6: right. <clears throat> and going to national academies, the national academies were in Pittsburgh and Allegheny County at one point looking at combined sewer overflows and other things, which was probably due in large part to your participation in that issue. How, so for those who don't know, you know, there are a lot of communities in the country that have old plumbing systems, basically, where sewers get combined with rainwater and overflow uh, and other systems that are sanitary and supposedly separate. But those also have problems of infiltration and inflow and all these things. Pitts, Allegheny County has had a problem with alka system that's been estimated 2 to $4 billion to fix that we've known about for at least 20 years that we're still looking to see. What the solutions are, but you've been involved with that issue for well over a decade?
1: Uh, We're going on 22
6: years. years. So, how's that? I mean, how did you get involved with that one? What's it mean to the region? What's the sort of state of play and where are we headed?
1: Yeah. I first got involved through the Allegheny Conference as president of Carnegie Mellon. uh, That almost automatically made me a member of the board of directors of the Allegheny Conference. The conference, to their credit, took on that issue, and they looked around for someone to chair a committee, and uh, they thought of me as Ed Norton with a Ph.D. For the younger <laughs> listeners in the audience, Ed Norton was Jackie Gleason's sidekick in the Honeymooners, and he worked in the source. Yep. So that's the Ed Norton with a Ph.D. idea. Uh, and indeed, so I've chaired, I don't know how many committees. I've lost track now, four or Five on the same issue. The driver here, David, is uh, not just the technical issue, which you described well. And as you also pointed out, we're not alone in this. But we are, if not alone, extreme in the degree to which we're fragmented. It's unbelievable when it comes to water and sewer services, authorities, how fragmented we are. I use the following uh datum as a way to dramatize the point and to convey uh, to people what our challenge is. There are approximately 5,000 entities in the United States that provide water sewer services or sewer services or both. Almost a 1,000 of them are in the 10-county region of Western, southwest Pennsylvania. I mean, think about that. Almost 20% of all the water and sewer authorities in the entire country are in our region which tells you something about how fragmented we are, tells you everything about how fragmented we are. This is important because you cannot solve water problems without taking an approach that matches the scale of the problem. Rivers don't know political boundaries, and they don't care about political boundaries. Rivers flow downhill, metaphorically. Um, And if you just look at a piece of that river basin, and in our case, we look at a thousand little pieces of that river basin and we're all part of the same Ohio upper head of the Ohio. Um, you're, you're hopelessly lost. So the theme that's run through all of these committees I've been part of and including the national academies committee, uh, which studied our, our issues has been the need to regionalize. I'm also not naive and I know how hard it is to regionalize, um, a an area like ours where which has this long history of going it alone. And now there are all sorts of entrenched special interests that grow up naturally. My brother in law works in the sewer system, so I don't want to sell it because then he'll lose his job. I'm making that up to everybody. That's <laughs> not a, that might be a real case, but I, if it is, I just got lucky. So it's really hard to break down those barriers. We've been making progress. Step by step over these twenty plus years, um, but that's what has to happen. We have to develop some kind of cooperative approach if we're really going to tackle this problem.
6: So we're looking at sort of an entrenched sewer issue in in Allegheny County, southwestern Pennsylvania, and elsewhere in the country. I mean, Philadelphia's had its issues elsewhere as well. But looking at this sort of long term, so if you go back to think about the '60s and where we were with environmental thinking and quality and conservation thinking where are we are we better off today because there's still you know in Allegheny County the you can see I mean in terms of air but there's still issues with air uh have have we come a long way do we have a long way to go are we facing existential problems with climate we haven't even gotten to the Scott Institute yet so I've just thrown a whole lot of stuff at you but sort of on that that time frame of what we're doing how are we we're in much, much better shape, especially for someone as
1: old as I am, uh, taking uh, the, who started this, as you pointed out, before EPA was even created. Um, basically, you could say that all major point sources of water pollution in this country are being treated at least at the secondary level. Now, if you treat a combined sewer overflow or consider a combined sewer overflow as a point source, and that's completely legitimate— That's the one major exception. Uh, That was not the case 50 years ago uh, where uh, a small fraction of the point sources were being treated at a secondary level. So that's all a result of the Clean Water Act amendments of 1972. Um, And the results have been stunning. I mean, our rivers are in much, much better shape. There are certainly exceptions, and we are among them. Um, But Even our rivers are in much better shape than they would have been 50 years ago. All right. And so
6: as Pennsylvania and Western Pennsylvania has experienced sort of these cycles of extractive development over time, whether it was sand and gravel, timber in the early 1900s, coal throughout, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that oil and gas in Pennsylvania was sort of done for until about 2008. Yeah. And our practice in Pennsylvania seemed to have been, let's Go go go, or drill baby drill or dig dig, dig, and then worry about the legacy issues later later uh, I think there there may have been a different approach this time around with unconventional shale gas development of which you once again partnered with pitt I mean it's it's you know a couple of these things, both the the uh, the CSO issues around here and the shale gas showed some interesting cooperation between Pitt and CMU, which I don't think had necessarily always been there. That's credit to Mark Nordenberg and you. Uh, But some shale gas legacy issues that came along, how'd you get involved with that one? Uh, I don't know. You
1: probably had a lot to do with that. I don't even know how that (laughs) happened. Um, But as you know better than I have it, whatever I've been involved in, you've been involved Ah. in, and thank goodness, because uh, you've just been a fabulous leader, uh, uh, on, on these issues in general, uh, on round tables at the center for responsible shale development and others that I'm sure I don't even know about. Uh, so thank you for
6: that a pleasure.
1: Um, I I'm glad you, you framed the issue the way you did, um, in terms of the legacy of an extractive, uh, uh, use, um, and one of my colleagues at, uh, at Carnegie Mellon, Mitchell Small, a uh, wonderful environmental statistician who's also been a leader on uh, risk assessment of shale gas. In fact, he chaired the National Academy panel on just that issue, um, would frame the the problem exactly the way you did. and But he does it in a particularly pointed way. He asked the question, if we can put ourselves forward 50 years or 100 years, What do we want our legacy to be when it comes to the shale gas uh, uh, development? Uh, Surely, when we look back 100 years, we can't be completely proud of our coal legacy. Uh, Of course, as your listeners know, many of them even better than I, we're all living with the problems of mine drainage, which will be with us for generations to come. Um, We don't want that, clearly for our shale gas legacy. On the other hand, one of the things I've come to appreciate, and we, you, David and I both participated in a, uh, a really uh, great um, uh, workshop that was held at Carnegie Mellon three years ago.
6: Something like that. that. Yeah. Uh,
1: That that we co-sponsored with TNC. um, Where we, talked about these issues. And what that brought home is how hard it is to really deal with them. Not just because it's shale gas and not because we're Western Pennsylvania. It's because we're humans and it's really hard to think decades into the future. And to imagine what that future could look like or should look like. And back to my colleague Mitch Small. Uh, I do want to uh, take this to another level. He, he trying to be productive here, realizing how hard it is for humans to think that long term, tries to uh, frame the problem as a series of pathways. That is, you're at a moment in time, 2018. You acknowledge that the shale gas industry is going to have impact for the next 50 years, let's say. Can we figure out a way so that at any moment, at any year between now and 2068, you can tell what path you're on? That is, okay, we've traveled along the path we know we've been on, and we project this path into the future following this trajectory. Is that what we want? And if not, what other pathways are available? Um, so kind of an adaptive management approach, mm-hmm. the phrase that's often used in in environment. But we're not doing that. So we we have a series of regulations, and thanks to you, David, and others involved in CRSD and other efforts, the regulatory frameworks in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia are much more robust than they were even five years ago. But none of that really takes into account cumulative impacts, long-range impacts. It's all kind of here and now. And I worry that we're just not getting our arms around the cumulative view.
6: Let me, so in terms of how one would do that for a number of different issues— you were at the center of forming the Scott uh, Center for Inno- Energy. What's the official title? I've Scott it. Institute, Institute for Energy Innovation. In Energy Innovation, and were its first director. No, I was uh, its second. Sec- you were all right, following retirement as president of CMU. Uh, the Scott Institute is it feels is doing things like that, trying to get its arms around the, some of those long term issues related not just probably to shale gas, but also looking at climate and other issues and. It's sort of the bringing together of a whole lot of brain power. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yes, and in particular, interdisciplinary brain power. That's the key. Having engineers and scientists and economists and other social scientists working together. And that's the hallmark of the Scott Institute. Uh, Another center uh, we have called the Center for uh, Climate Decision Making, Climate and Energy Decision Making, which is Co-led by Granger Morgan, the first director of the Scott Institute, right. and Inez Azevedo, a professor in engineering and public policy, uh, that's exactly what that's all about. Which is taking that broad interdisciplinary view of a problem that's got a very long uh,
6: future. So, how does that then sort of show itself through work? I mean, the Scott Institute—you've got a lot of incredibly smart people. I mean, CMU, obviously. Uh, smart people working on these issues and then getting out. And this sort of goes back to the advocacy versus research question as well. So you've got energy week, you've got companies spinning out, you you know, influence on committees nationally and internationally. Yep. You know, how is there hope? <laughs> <laughs> Those are kind of two separate questions. Yes. They are. Um,
1: I the most important product from Carnegie Mellon and places like Carnegie Mellon uh is our students. And there, there's reason for hope. The students I see are really wonderful. And I'm thinking in particular about our doctoral program in engineering public policy. Um, and just by the very name of the program, you can imagine these are people, in fact, we, are, we attract people and then try to produce graduates who have this special character that they have a deep understanding of the technology but they're, they're, they pursue it all in a policy context. We've graduated a lot of people from that program. And many of them have gone on to government agencies, uh, consultants that work for government agencies. And I think they're having real impact. And I think uh, we're seeing it. Now, you can't escape politics. And you know, the current national political scene is horrible when it comes to environmental issues. Uh, but there are people out there that that know what they're doing. Still, it, there's sort of the more fundamental question raised by your question about is there hope. Can the human race find a sustainable pathway to the future? And I think that's an open question. I mean, the, you know, the tragedy of the commons yep. is kind of inescapable. And um, we've not shown ourselves... Capable of overcoming that yet, uh, and maybe it takes some real catastrophes like uh, Fiji disappearing or something. Even that may not be enough because that may not really appeal to people in Western Europe or or, or the U.S. Uh, enough to make them take action.
6: All right, so looking forward and thinking about legacies again, what are the legacies of all this work fifty years from now? Oh boy. That you've done? Yeah,
1: let me point out, I'm no better thinking 50 <laughs> years in the future than anybody else's, and I already asserted that we're a lousy yes. at that. Uh, I, I, I go back to the students, so I, yeah, academics are a funny thing because uh, our products are not tangible, they're ideas, and they're people who look like us, but are better than us. we hope uh, us being the, the faculty. Uh, It's papers, which um, only have real value beyond getting yourself promoted, of uh, influencing the way other people think, which comes back to your point about advocacy versus analysis. Uh, And so that's all kind of nebulous. But when you're part of it and you interact with these young people who come in and then graduate— to replace by other exciting young people. You can't help but think that there really is a legacy there. And it's a legacy of ideas and people and the people that will come after them, who they will influence and educate. And there's reason that those people will figure this
6: out, and at least we hope so. Well, on that... I want to thank you for all of this. Uh, It's really been wonderful for you to come in and do this. Uh, The work on, for I mean, locally here, the work on shale gas, the work on uh, combined sewer overflows and water—that is still. That's the work that still resonates. I think everybody still talks about the Cohen reports whenever they talk about this, and there there are a number of them. But you know how that's going forward and what that's really doing for this region, even though we haven't solved the issue yet. And that's there's a lot of money to be spent and a lot of heartache to get there, but. It's about clean water, and it's about the future. Jared Cohen, thank you so much for doing this, and we are honored to be able to honor you this year with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, it doesn't mean you're done yet. Uh, a lot of people have said that. They said, does that mean I'm done if I get this award? No. We still expect great things, and uh, we're looking forward to that on uh, at the event and for greater things still to come. So thank you.
1: Thank you, David, and thank you for all that you have done and do for the environment in Pennsylvania.
6: Our pleasure. Thank you.
0: Pennsylvania Environmental Council President David Woodwell in conversation with Dr. Jared Cohen, President Emeritus of Carnegie Mellon University and recipient of the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Award at the upcoming Western Pennsylvania Environmental Awards Dinner. Thanks once again to Point Park University and the Center for Media Innovation, where this interview was recorded. Keep an eye on the PEC website in the weeks ahead as we will be sharing video tributes to each of our award winners in the video room section of the site, which you'll find at pecpa.org slash video. You'll find past episodes of the Pennsylvania Legacies podcast in the audio room, including conversations with past award winners celebrated at each of our regional dinners. The address for the audio section of the site is pecpa.org slash audio. You can listen to episodes online there on the website Or even better, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, in Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play or your podcast app of choice. Again, it's PeckPA.org, where in addition to a podcast, you'll find video, you'll find posts detailing our recent work in watersheds, in energy and climate and deep decarbonization trail and outdoor recreation and lots more check out the events calendar to find out what's upcoming in your area events of are both hosted and sponsored by PEC and others put together by uh, partner organizations and friends in various parts of the state again the events calendar on the website as well as the peck bill tracker where you can stay on top of important legislation affecting environmental issues that's on the move in harrisburg You can also find PEC's uh, policy positions on those uh, pieces of legislation or other important matters before the state government, again, on the Bill Tracker section of our website. Have a look around and explore what's there. It's a a lot of content, and we hope you find some value there. And we hope you'll tune in for another episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. We post new ones every other Friday at, again, pecpa.org and uh, all those podcast platforms. You can find us. You can get in touch by email at legacies at P-E-C-P-A dot org. Get in touch with us on Facebook or on Twitter. Follow us at PECPA. Until next time, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rawlerson. Thanks so much for listening.